0: everyone to this Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dali Yedgensen and this is Finarna Yedgensen and we run the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Research Group at the University of Stavanger. And we're thrilled today that we get to have a really interesting look at um, games and digital nature. Um, with Alinda Chang, who's Associate Professor in Film and Media Studies at UC Santa Barbara. And um, she's also, I'll note, the co-founder of the digital media studio Wireframe, um, which I think is really interesting from an environmental humanities perspective as a uh, space for talking about new media and issues like social and environmental justice. Uh, She'll be talking to us today about her first book, Playing Nature, Ecology in Video Games, which came out with University of Minnesota Press at the end of 2019. So welcome. I'll hand it over to you.
1: Okay. Ooh, Sorry if I have a frog in my throat. It's a little early here. I'm still drinking my coffee. (laughs) So thank you so much um, to both Vinarna and Dolly for inviting me to do this um, chat and I really also appreciate the format. So not having to do a really formal like 40 to 50 minute talk and just sort of speak to humans as a human is actually really nice. So thank you and thank you for coming and and listening. Um, I thought maybe what I would do is just give some background about how I got to playing nature and maybe also some of the things, um, you know, that I wish had been in the book and maybe didn't have time to get to so these these kinds of meta meta things that you don't normally get to talk to authors about about their books. So <clears throat> if it starts to get too rambly, just feel free to cut me off. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think this is, um, you know, I, I did def- I definitely did not set out to write a book about ecology and video games, so I will say that. Um, I went to school with Doug, who's there, I'm shouting out to him, but you know, the first few years, I actually went into my PhD thinking, I was going to write a, doctor, um, a doctoral thesis about nature documentary. So <laughs> things have progressed very differently, um, but in some ways are, are very much the same. So um, I think, first of all, I just wanted to get a, a few ideas across in the book and I hope I was successful in doing this, but um, obviously one of them is that I think games are in some ways ideally suited to communicating environmental relations and and perhaps environmental issues more specifically, though I always want to stress they're not the only way. um, Oftentimes I think there's a fear that in hyping the digital or hyping the the sort of ludic, the playful, that I'm uh, maybe uh, doing a disservice to all these other forms of representation that we all know are very important for what what we know about how nature is portrayed and how nature is questioned and interrogated. And I'm definitely not doing away with that. So I think, I hope that the book communicates my sort of media agnosticism in the sense that I, I kind of draw from literary theory and literature as well as in some respects, film and, um, and media studies definitely more broadly, and then do a deep dive into the game stuff. But I also wanted to communicate a sort of nerdy science love for the world. <laughs> And just what I what I still, it never gets old, right? I still have this very deep sense of wonder at the natural world. And um, many people don't know that when I was younger, I was actually pre-med. So for a couple of years in college, <laughs> I feel like with a thousand other people out there <laughs> at every college, I was pre-med and then I wasn't pre-med. <laughs> um, after, and I was maybe two courses shy of finishing my pre-med degree. So, Um, And what I I found sort of killed my interest in it was actually doing lab work. So um, I I had done a lot of field research or sort of observational research on animals um, in other people's labs. So I worked on um, Indonesian bowerbirds and Komodo dragons, a lot of Indonesian species. I'm not sure why that happened that way. (laughs) Um, And... uh, Plain fin midshipmen, which are these strange little fish that live under rocks in Bodega Bay in California. Um, so, you know, I did some of that, but then I, you know, to really get my pre-med chops in order, I went and worked in a neurobiology lab um, at Cornell. And um, the short answer is basically that I really hated it. <laughs> So obviously when you enter, when you enter a science lab, there's always a pecking order. So when you're the lowly undergraduate who has just joined trying to boost their CV, you usually get the worst jobs. (laughs) And not to say that they treated me badly, but I was doing things like um, outlining the, outlining cells on like a big microscopic um, image and like counting the area of those cells. Um, And then, you know, if I graduated from that, I could like slice fish brains, which would be cooler. Um, but it really killed my love <laughs> of of sort of the kind of science that I wanted to do. So maybe that tells you something. Um, other people, other things people might not know are that um, I I wouldn't be here uh, unless there was a sort of interest in science. I kind of joke because my parents immigrated to the United States in the 1960s because they were both pursuing graduate degrees in science. Um, did did not go on to be. Um, scientists one was working in medicine and one did other things but um my dad did fisheries biology and my mom uh, was doing zoology and so i think in some ways it's just sort of been inculcated in me from a very early age so um so along with the science i was also trying to communicate in a, a real affinity for games and i think um in some ways i count myself really lucky to have grown up with Um, computing technology. So if if you're of a certain age, you've sort of seen the many setbacks and failures of computing technology along with the the grand successes. And so having, you know, had a dial-up modem (laughs) and, and, uh, you know, played or wrote on uh, bulletin board systems and played off of diskettes and Really crummy computers. Like really, we we were too poor to have the really nice computers, so we had the like knockoff versions of of good things for a while. But um, <clears throat> I think that that breeds a, a certain skepticism and humility in relation to digital technology, which I think you have to have, even if you're going to go on to sing its praises, which I do um, often. Um, so I wanted that to be clear. So this affinity for science and the natural world and this affinity for games um, while having this healthy skepticism in the back of your mind. Um, and if you look if you look back at the, most of the publications that I've done, um, you'll notice that I actually haven't written very much directly for game studies audiences. Um, and that's something <clears throat> I think I, I don't know if I did this on purpose or if it just ended up being, um, Reflecting my own investments in some ways. So, I think the book was an intervention into game studies, but it was primarily about communicating <laughs> um, a scholarly viewpoint on this sort of neglected area of cultural response to environmental crisis. So, that's why a lot of this is in Aisle or um, other journals that aren't necessarily game studies journals, um, like um, Electronic Book Review. <laughs> So um, uh, I think that that is somewhat interesting and maybe limits the the sort of scope of my message um, and or limits the scope of the intervention if game studies people aren't seeing it as much, but I'm hoping it still percolates through to those other areas. So um, in the book, as you probably know, I have these really short chapter names. And um, yeah, I think, these, many of those terms are sort of derived from ecology or environmental science, but I had to sort of have some wiggle room as, as I discovered and I'll talk about, but um, they're basically a heuristic to think about, um, to think about games and how, how, if any, in any way, they actually communicate environmental relations or processes um, or issues. And so I came up with these um, from reading the scientific literature. So I actually enjoy <clears throat> reading scientist papers. <laughs> so when playing nature was published, and one of the first reviews was actually <clears throat> in science magazine, I was so excited. <laughs> so that was just like a really big deal. And I was, I was hoping Ira reflect out from science Friday with call, but that didn't happen. Boo. <laughs> I know. Um, you know, but it was really exciting. My neighbor two doors down is this really excellent marine ecologist. And so they walked their paper issue of science down to my house and said, hey, look, (laughs) your book is in this. And so it was really great to see that we can come from very different sides of campus and still be linked somehow. Um, So, you know, I have these terms like mesocosm and scale, um, entropy and collapse, which I think are, if not ecological terms, they definitely have a systemic orientation. Um, And a lot of it is thinking about how games have gone from being very much a subcultural thing, at least in my childhood, to being um, totally mainstream. I think a lot of people still think about games as subculture. Um, My colleague is Dick Hebdige, so I can say this, I guess. (laughs) But I don't really think that they follow, they don't fall into that category anymore. And so I think a lot of the scholarly realization is about moving them out of the subcultural category into this broad mainstream Um, category. Um, So these ecological terms help me to think about how play contexts have changed. So um, we still do a lot of gaming inside the house and, you know, sitting at the computer on the couch. But we also do a lot of playing of games outdoors when we're on our mobile phones or when we're commuting. Um, um, Some of them, some forms of gaming like alternate reality gaming or augmented reality gaming Um, or various forms of mobile play encourage you to actually sort of um, play on the go. And so I was thinking about this sort of change or the differences in play context, um, as well as what I thought was a maturing of the medium itself to really think more about environmental, I guess, to have more environmental content. So there are now really lush and beautiful games um, that wouldn't have existed before, that really grapple with um, environmental uh, processes in some way. Um, I think there's still a lot of room for improvement, but um, it's exciting to see what's possible now. And um, But I think a lot of these ecological terms only took me so far. So at, at a certain point, I found I needed to bring in other terms. So that's why there's this weird chapter right in the middle about the non-human. <laughs> where I really needed to talk more about um, the kinds of emotional connections that games can produce. Um, for instance, when you are asked to play as an animal or as a sort of geological entity or something like that. Um, and I also wanted to use that to think about um, less obvious forms of environmental play where you're like saving saving the planet from a pollution or overlord or something like that, which is a very sort of, um, direct narrative. (laughs) And I was really interested in the value that you can derive from um, more destructive forms of play in games. Um, So things things like um, annihilating your environment or just sort of breaking systems down to see what goes wrong. Uh, And also both taking possibly taking pleasure in those kinds of acts as a form of experimentation, but also. yeah, also maybe um, uh, feeling real feelings of loss over the destruction of these virtual habitats. So um, I tried not to go on and on about World of Warcraft in my book, because I, I played way too many hours of that game <laughs> back in the day. I will not tell you how many, <laughs> but I do have like one chunk of the book where I talk a great deal about um, some of the changes that were wrought in that game world and how it really affected people. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, I think this is all kind of brought, brought into the foreground now with the pandemic, and especially in the United States where we've done a really poor job of managing things. I know, <laughs> you know, it's an understatement, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, I, you know, I've noticed sort of anecdotally this huge uptick in people playing games while under sort of lockdown conditions, as well as, you um, journalists have been really interested in this phenomenon as well. So they're just, you know, the internet is littered with these articles about um, Animal Crossing New Horizons. So on the switch, right? Just like, ah, I couldn't have my wedding. So I did it in Animal Crossing or, you know, virtual gardening is keeping me sane, that kind of stuff. So, um, and I've seen this before, but it's just, it's interesting to see it um, amplified by the current moment. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> And then in terms of regrets, I think I do have a lot of them. Um, I thought I had written the book in an accessible way and then looking back at it now, I'm not sure that I did. <laughs> so, so I don't know if this happens. Um, maybe Dolly and, and Benard can help me, but it's once you write your first book, you sort of feel like, wow, I kind of want to write it again, except like shorter and more to the point. <laughs> so um, I have that feeling. Um, I also wish I had, Dealt more directly with what I know to be true, but I sort of took for granted, and I don't know if that's that's clear. Is that um, you know terms like nature are incredibly loaded and have these huge colonialist implications, uh, especially you know when you look at nature exploration and games. And I wish I had engaged more with that aspect um, and with indigenous sort of pathways and lifeways and also all these sort of new games that are coming out that are embodying that so that would have been for me an interesting chapter that was that is not there i also didn't have a lot of time to do a a great deal of um, satisfying close reading of games so some feedback that i've gotten is just that it's a really overwhelming list of games so it's very it's very broad but not necessarily deep and i think um you know that there are there are other books that would have been done in a different way that would have done deep dives for perhaps one or two games per chapter. And I think because of what I was trying to do, synthesizing across so many different fields, I don't think I had the opportunity to do that. Um, And it was already too long. You can ask my publisher. (laughs) So (laughs) I think my contract was for 85,000, something 80 to 85,000 words. And it clocked in at around 102 so yeah i was like you were bad (laughs) that was bad um and i also wish if i had a little more technical savvy and energy i would have loved to do a project where the book was um had an online companion of some kind so i think stephanie bullock and patrick lemura did a wonderful job with their book metagaming where they actually had on the minnesota press manifold platform they have the book available as well as integrated with these short, playable art experiences or art games. So that would have been really exciting. Um, Do I have a little time still, do you think? Or should I stop? Okay, just a little. I was going to say, in terms of where I am now in research, I think um, I sort of, I'm tentatively thinking about doing another book about um, digital modeling of natural assets. And I think um, an asset in the digital work pipeline is basically anything that would go into the finished product. So it could be artwork like sprites or models, or it could be sound effects. Um, and so this kind of started um, out of out of a little bit of the book and um, the Between Plants and Polygons article um, that I wrote for electronic book review, um, where I was really doing an obsessive deep dive into um, vegetation modeling and this company called Speedtree that has headquarters in um, South Carolina, I think. And basically if you've seen um, like a tree or vegetation in any mainstream computer game or even um cinema and television. Um, it's it it's likely come from their catalog. So if you've seen the, you know, the opening shot of James Cameron's Avatar, you know, the Pandoran rainforest <laughs> are a bunch of speed trees. <laughs> um, and so of course, it's like it's it's semiotic gold where I'm like, what is a speed tree? How can a tree be speedy? <laughs> and and just like doing this dive into thinking about how, companies model these trees. Some of them take actual um, botanical principles and try to model them and others just sort of design it as artwork, which is meant to be plugged into an environment and then duplicated. So I've, I'm sort of thinking about broadening that out into a book about other phenomena as well, like um, like rain or wind or these kind of other things. Um, and I um, I'm also thinking I've sort of zoomed out from the entropy chapter in playing nature to think more and more about infrastructure of gaming. So, um, and this is part of the desire to also just sort of um, put my money where my mouth is. So not just writing about ecology and games, but also helping the game industry to be more sustainable. So um, thinking about my, my colleague, Lisa Parks has this really interesting idea of the um energy media matrix where it's it's where she says we no longer should be thinking about media like television or radio or um smartphone or something like that but we should also be thinking in terms of how they are powered and the infrastructure that brings them into being so you would say you know just like we would say this is an electric vehicle we might also say this is a battery-powered laptop or you know this is a lithium-ion battery powered (laughs) Um, device, right, so to always connect media to that, to that sort of side of things, um, and I'm writing, um, unfortunately, what I had a colleague who is interested in these areas just pass away, and we were working together on an essay about, um, about cloud gaming, about this new um, push in the industry to stream games, basically, um, and I'm, I'm ex- inspired by work that's been done by media scholars on streaming video on demand. Uh, Like we just published an essay by Laura Marks where she says we should, when we um, stream like high quality video, we should liken that to eating a juicy steak at a restaurant. (laughs) So, oh no. (laughs) Um, So I'm just, I'm really curious about this whole area. The calculations are really hard to do, but um, this is sort of where I am now. So I'll just stop there.
2: Thank you um, yeah there's some really fascinating material here and uh, I'm sure we could talk for quite a while about that I mean I certainly have lots of things I'd like to discuss with you uh, so one thing I think we could perhaps start with with is this idea of, of genre I mean just like in literature there's also all these genres of, of video games and I see nature and environment popping up basically in all of them uh, <laughs> do you do you Did you discuss genre in games much and like discuss whether or not some genres are more, I don't know if I want to say appropriate, but more interesting things happening with the way nature is being uh, represented and engaged with?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I do touch on it, but probably not in a way that would satisfy literary scholars. <laughs> um, I, I do, for instance, say things like the re- RTS genre, like the real-time strategy genre, could be reimagined, um, or any kind of um, open-world game, sandbox simulations. I mean, in some ways, they're very; those sort of omniscient viewpoint games are very readily open to critique, but they're also ideal for thinking about systems and, and how they work. And if you if you want your player to take a bureaucratic perspective or a managerial perspective, that's actually ideal. And in some ways, even though we don't we don't like bureaucracy, in some ways we need to become better bureaucrats <laughs> um, to, to to deal with some of these problems. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, there there is that. And I think um, I'm really I'm curious about pitting um, like Amitav Ghosh's writing about literary fiction um, and the sort of constraints of realism and quality literary work against the um, games as a whole and how um, you're sort of liberated from that. Um, So one of the kind of terms that I wrestle with in the book is just the, the concept of realism in games and how for so long it's been tied to graphical realism, or at least that's the, what the, in, the industry would like you to believe, is that um, we're, we're getting closer and closer asymptotically to this pinnacle of realism, which will be, you know, when VR, basically. VR and we're done, <laughs> right? So, um, but sort of, that's why I kind of perversely write about games like Adventure, where um, I think it's a really environmentally realistic game without having any graphics, and that's because the developers Ethos was informed by his his love for caving, you know. So, these kinds of things um, I think are interesting. But yeah, I think um, not. A, I haven't done a full scale genre analysis, um, and in some ways, I think I avoided it because no one agrees <laughs> on what those are. And one of my field visits very early on was to the Smithsonian um, American Art Museum when they did the 2011 exhibit on the art of video games and they they asked thousands of participants from around the globe to submit their favorite games which ones should be included in the museum exhibit and then the the curator who was um an employee of Sun Microsystems but a video game sort of connoisseur had a lot of control over the way that was dictated and to me like the categories didn't necessarily make sense like you know uh, <clears throat> that made sense sometimes it was divided by platform sometimes it was divided by genre like action-adventure or platformer or whatever but um I don't know if there's real consensus over it yeah but that's great thank you yeah I think I see chat. Find,
2: yeah I think I also find interesting uh Crossovers like one of the most fascinating and, I mean, even convincing nature representations I've seen is, of course, in the background of a hyper-violent cowboy role-playing game. So, uh, Red Dead Redemption. I, you must
1: be talking about yeah.
2: <laughs> no, there's all. When we were commenting on the the articles popping up, I mean, there's been a lot of them on like bird watching in, in RDR2 and uh, and so on.
1: I haven't played them. It's so funny, but you should try. Uh, it's,
2: it's it's fabulous.
1: So. I mean, I I would love to get mauled by a mountain lion in a game. That would be awesome, which uh, does happen in RDR. But, right. but also, they've done I think they've done um, studies about how many critters get shot. And I think the number one was crows in the original Red Dead yep. Redemption, like massive amounts of crows. Yeah.
2: So we have right. a question oh. from, from Emma first.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, thank you. Can you hear me OK? Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Um, to answer your question earlier, yes, you did reach game designers. I'm a game designer here in
0: Switzerland studying um, my master's degree and your book was a huge impact on my thesis. So it's really exciting to hear you talk here now.
1: That's wonderful. Um, But I did have a question. Um, So your book uses a lot of ecological and environmental rhetoric to make sense of nature and games. Um, And then you also mentioned that you would like to have written a chapter about the cultural impacts on how nature is represented in games. And this is particularly interesting for my thesis. And I was kind of curious what your thoughts are, like the differences between Japanese games because of the Shinto culture Mm. or Uh Western. Yeah, this is another one that's hard to navigate, but I have, I am interested and I've taught One of the classes I taught to my undergrads recently was a comparative nature course It was primarily film based, but we did look at some other things. But it was it was my attempt to sort of think about cultural, um, maybe cultural variations and approaches to nature. So we looked at things like Norwegian slow TV. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, and then like, um, I don't know like uh, Isabella Rossellini's green porno shorts and some other things that um, uh, we did look at some like people of the feather. And so we, we, we looked at a variety and I do think that's that's interesting. Um, it's often it would require a great deal more research and substantiation to make convincing arguments about <laughs> uh, about sort of cultural differences. But I um, I found this uh, briefly when I was doing my article on farm games, because for that, I ended up playing probably 60 or 70 different small casual farm games. And some of them were actually Chinese farm games or Japanese farm games. I think one was Russian. Um, And so for that, um, it did lead me to the, you know, the term that you probably know from game design or most um, most marketing is to localization, which you know, in game design, is really like let's translate this into the host region's language. But it, there are sometimes attempts to do cultural localization, so that the Japanese RPG, when it reaches the North American audience, you know, they change the jokes so that they make more sense or <laughs> to that audience. And then, so we can maybe extend that to say, you know, can games be more meaningfully? You know geographically or ecologically localized right um and then that also begs the question just whether um the games are even meaningfully localized in the first place like when you're playing that japanese rpg is it is it really about a certain japanese ecology or is it a generic sort of fantasy space these are these are questions that i think are interesting but i haven't addressed
2: OK, so we have I got another question in the chat here from Doug. Um, it was sent as a direct message, so I'll just read it here, um, <laughs> which was about environmental destruction in Minecraft. Um, it's not a long-term favorite of mine. So um, so he says that in order to survive in a game, everything has to be crafted by exploiting resources in the environment. So then one thing he finds himself doing in the game is going back to repair the things is destroyed in order to craft survival materials. So ecological restoration in the game. Uh, which is something you don't have to do in a game, uh, but, but something that you find doing, those. So do you find patterns of this kind of behavior in sandbox world games that allow it?
1: That's really interesting. And I think I've observed that with my son playing with my brother, his uncle. So they have Minecraft play dates together. Um, and I guess I've had this happen in Animal Crossing because because we share an island. So. Um, like I'll log into Animal Crossing and then there will just be like holes all over the island. <laughs> so, you know, he's just been digging stuff up, and doesn't bother to fill them in. And so, of course, I go back and repair things. I guess the question is, is that coming out of like a sort of um, in, environmentalist aesthetic of care where you're you're trying to care for the landscape or is it more an aesthetic sort of, I don't want the beauty of my landscape to be marred <laughs> by these things, right? It sounds like Doug's doing doing it more out of, um, a generosity of spirit (laughs) for the landscape, but, um, and something, and the same thing happens in Minecraft. I haven't studied that, but I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because I do, it shows that players, um, are invested, are genuinely invested and care enough for something that they know to be they know not to be real in that sense, right? But um, st- it still gives them some kind of pleasure to care for. And that's just sort of how we're built.
2: <laughs> yeah, I did a poster some years ago at a conference on placemaking and computer games. So there I talked about you know building yourself into the landscape in in Minecraft as a particular way of, of placemaking also. So mm. you come to care about these places through mm-hmm. making them your own and building. Uh, yeah. So Fiona, you have a question oh let see
0: yes can you hear me no. yes um yeah thank you for very much for your book talk i thought it was very interesting and i'm really looking forward to reading your book yeah uh, and um, i was uh, wondering because in environmental uh, sciences yeah, a concept one quite often encounters is is that of uncertainty. And um, I was wondering to what extent you were able to touch upon that uh, in, in your work, or did you come
1: across this element? Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful question. Um, I, I do think uncertainty, I don't know if I use that term, but it is something that I think um, interesting environmental games embrace. So um, I have written some more pointed pieces about with game design principles for what would make a more interesting environmental game. And one of those principles um, is that game environments should surprise us. So I just think um, I'm so much more interested in a game that I pick up and play in which something occurs um, in the game environment that I'm not expecting um and so i don't know something would be so and i keep talking about animal crossing that's that's not the only game i play i swear but, but you know the first time you get stung by a wasp after you know shaking the trees for things to get items you know you can knock down a wasp nest and you get stung and that was kind of surprising but in a delightful way right um and so i think it shows to me, that demonstrates that the game environment has been built with an eye to some kind of agency for that environment, or some kind of independence. And that is a, you know, principle tenet of environmental thinking too, as well as that um, uh, we have to be humble in the sense that we don't know, <laughs> we don't even know totally what exists out there. We don't know how things function. Um, we don't know what um, our actions, what impact our actions will have beyond a certain point right And so all of that leads to a certain um, well ideally would list, would lead to a precautionary principle which is so often cast aside right so but I think that's a that's an excellent question. So yes <laughs> more uncertainty, more sort of humility in, in environmental gameplay.
3: Yeah,
0: thank you very much.
2: Yeah. Then uh, Mary has a question.
4: You. Right. I wanted to say that I saw my flatmate being mauled by a bear in Red Dead Redemption just <laughs> two nights ago. It wasn't a fabulous scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but no. I wanted to ask you about what you said uh, about animal about sharing an island on Animal Crossing, and I was wondering whether you use such mm-hmm. examples in the book to to maybe argue for. Environmentality as something intersubjective or collective rather than an individual experience, and and maybe and maybe this in maybe this is more related to your interest in infrastructure of gaming. But I'm also interested to see whether you think with these uh, collectivities that are created in gaming forums and generally mm. this multiplayer culture, and whether mm-hmm. that can create these uh, yeah, global collaborations in terms of en- environmentalism.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. I, I think that's why I did make a point to not just talk about single player games, um, in the book. Um, and this is, I mean, most of you probably won't be struggling with framing out a book about, about games, right? But these are the kinds of things that run through your brain. <laughs> it's like, you can't possibly cover everything, right? And I have I advise a lot of um, doctoral students who are working on game topics, and oftentimes they will say to me things like, "I'm just going to write about console games," and I say, "No," <laughs> or "I'm I'm just going to write about these like four AAA <clears throat> mainstream games," or you know, like just this, this is my thing. And in some ways, I respect the the desire to narrow to a manageable topic, but. Um, we have to realize games are not monolithically one thing, right? So that's the difficulty. And I and I think you you hit the nail on the head in the sense that if you're going to look at environmental dynamics, you have to look at collectivity um, and these problems that um, sociologists and many other um, researchers are wrestling with around collective action and sort of the free rider problem of or the commons, whatever however you want to phrase it. Um, that uh, games would be. Um, a really excellent place to model because they're, they're ethically unencumbered in many ways. <laughs> so, you know, we're free to play out these um, absurd or kind of uh, dire and dark fantasies. Um, and so there are games that I look at um, like Eco, ECO, I'll type it in here, by Stranger Games. I interviewed the CEO of this company, but they basically set out to make a sustainable Minecraft so it looks like Minecraft, but it's actually, they have um, scientists on staff. Um, it's it's based on the Pacific Northwest of the United States. So it has, um, you know, the fauna is, is stuff you would see there like moose. Um, and in that they've built in very sophisticated environmental dynamics. So if you do mining, um, you actually get mine tailings that pollute the water table. Um, and they're very simple things like um, you know how, if you're, if you're a game player, you know that th- there's a convention where um, you can basically just amass so much stuff and it all sort of magically fits in your backpack. <laughs> like in your knapsack, like I have like, you know, five trees in here and, <laughs> and, and like six roast chickens and all these things. But in, in Eco, I love it because they actually say, like, you can't do that. And in order to amass things, you have to create these stockpiles. Uh, that take up space on the land and um, but the so why bring up eco is because it's not just pursuing environmental sophistication they also have a very complicated and robust player um, government system where they're supposed to work together to create legislation so they can create laws and pass them like no one is permitted to hunt this species because it's on the brink of extinction Um, and then they have to enforce them as well and the sort of, um, I guess, the conceit is that um, the world gets built and then there's a meteor that's sort of going to annihilate the planet within a certain number of days if you don't um, innovate your way to a solution. So it's a little bit technologically determinist, but I like the way that they, that they've built in the collective player dynamics. But I think you can see this in other games that that haven't tried to do that so explicitly. So, um, like Minecraft, um, I don't know, or even, yeah, game games where sometimes players don't play the game as intended and instead, you know, elect to take on a large task <laughs> together um, that goes counter to what the game is trying to do, right? But I'm I'm not sure if I go as far as um, like. Jane McGonigal, for instance, who is really thinking about how we can um, leverage all of these playable hours toward the solution of our, our problems. Um, so that, that can sometimes be harder to, to envision, <laughs> I'll just say. Thank you. So
2: Eric has a question. Hello, so I'm, I'm
3: um, it's, it's good to uh, see you in person. I'm a complete novice to games and, you know, um, coming at things from literary studies. So I guess one of, um, some of my questions have to do with, um, well, one I started to address is this kind of issues about um, creating, I don't know what you want to call it, a collective sensibility and how you would go about designing a game or something where you would want to instill a sense of solidarity among people mm. as well as with uh, the non-human world so maybe that's like a, gr- a general principle that you might aspire to as an ideal and like in literary studies pretty much everybody's sort of like well literature can kind of you can create effective responses and you can have sort of guess, an ethics of literature But going going for taking anytime you start to take literary art or art in general and start making it political you risk falling mm. into i guess becoming mm. propagandistic so here's mm-hmm. my way of kind of formulating the question for you in, in game studies would be something like, how would you go about instilling sort of like these larger values that <clears throat> some sort of would agree on? We need to like have solidarity uh, for, you know, this kind of feeling for all the inhabitants of the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And then how do you square that with sort of like the desire that a lot of people love to play games with this, you know, like it's a place where you can act out your most kind of extreme, let's call it like libertarian fantasies where <laughs> I know there's rules in this world, but I want to go and I want to find and I want to you know, break things and smash things and, and get away with breaking the law, you know, like, so you can do like a second Linux thing. It's like, all right, games allow us to channel those things. So you're not actually going and hopefully destroying things out here. But anyway, do you see like, this is, this is a big question, but does it, does it, Does it, uh, I don't know, take it whichever, whatever direction you want to, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I think in some ways when you started asking, I was thinking that the analogy would be, instead of literature to propaganda, it would be like games to gamification. So we've had this big debate in game studies around the leveraging of game mechanics or like the game-like scenario to make things that are unpalatable palatable. So it's like, if I can just make... This you know, seven day um, occupational training course into a game, it'll be great. <laughs> Everybody will have a fabulous time. <laughs> and there, I think people have, uh, people have definitely poked holes in that argument. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, hmm. In some respects, I think we don't I, I think I've tried to say all along that we don't need to make very overtly, like beat you over the head with a stick games that are trying to make everybody into a good environmentalist. Um, And that might actually have the the secondary undesired effect of driving people away from (laughs) away from that mindset. Um, But that sort of these small interventions in um, perception and like, just even about thinking what is possible can be made at the level of, of games that are already very popular um and that have huge budgets right Um, and those are very like incremental changes but to me it's it it would be very meaningful if a game that sells like millions and millions of copies um had an environment that um did have some kind of agency of its own right Um, but at the same time part of me the more kind of um soapboxy part of me is is okay with the really Blatant didactic attempts to leverage games, because in some ways we don't we don't have time left to really. (laughs) To sort of digger and um, you know whatever works so just willing to throw everything at it right now, so I don't know if that means that i'm advocating propaganda but. (laughs) I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for some of these activist games like that PETA makes. Um, If you've never played it, if you've played Pokemon, you should go to PETA's site. It's the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, but they have this um, parody game called PETA Pokemon Black and Blue, um, when the Pokemon rise up against their oppressors, like their oppressor trainers, and they're all like beaten and abused. So that's why (laughs) I kind of love, and they also have a parody of Nintendo's Cooking Mama, which is um, great for teaching because it's it takes out it's not sterilized and sort of cleansed of all of the yucky parts like you have to eviscerate a chicken and it's very bloody and gory you know so it's like pulling a Fiona Apple of games where it's like you're playing you're playing the game and then you have to watch this video about turkeys being slaughtered for <laughs> so anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean, it does raise some interesting questions about, you know, what what are games for? Do we play games to have fun? Do we play games to learn? Do we play games to face very uncomfortable truths? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are coming to games to get entertainment. Uh, mm-hmm. But could be that you get mm-hmm. something more. But I think in some of these serious games, there's also a lot of resistance uh, to, I mean, to really engaging people because of this. Because you know you'll be faced with... Uncomfortable
1: mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I should have told um, Eric about, well, I I start with Walden, the game that they made at USC, because it's so um, it's a perfect object to talk about, <laughs> <laughs> whether or not games are ideal for v- literary vehicles. Um, I guess it's not propagandistic, but um, but that the whole genre of walking simulator games is very controversial in the game community. <laughs>
2: All right, so we have a question from Veronica.
1: Hi, um,
0: can you hear me okay? Perfect. Thank you, Elinda. This was a really interesting talk. I'm excited to read your book as well. Um, and so I was really particularly interested when you mentioned your um, interesting destructive forms of play as opposed to like more um constructive and and sort of cultivation sort of focused games with regards to how players are interacting with the natural world and so i was just wondering if you could speak more about uh why you are so
1: interested in uh the potentials of destructive play specifically yeah i i've gone back and forth on this um i think i was alerted to it because on game sites that review games um I kept seeing um, these top 10 lists of what they, the term is destructible. So it's like the the top 10 best destructible environments in games. And by that, they they basically mean um, how much of the game environment can you obliterate? Um, And in some ways that's to be um, uh, denigrated, right? Because it's like, it's the most, it's like the most overt sort of (laughs) power relation between player and environment But at at the same time, it's also to be celebrated in some ways because that means that the game environment is actionable. So rather than being this sort of passive backdrop or um, which is really just there for show, like you can actually do things to it. It's just unfortunate that the the sort of range of verbs is mostly about like burning, um, shattering, destroying, that sort of thing. It's Games like Far Cry, which I don't tend to play Um, but we are all familiar with, if you've played games, um, almost any kind of dungeon explorer game where any crate or vase or (laughs) vessel, it basically begs to be destroyed (laughs) because it's part of the game developer's tool set for delivering, you know, bonuses to you or power ups or something like that. But it just says something about like how you navigate through, through game worlds, that that's a convention is that, oh yeah, of course I should shred that curtain. Um, imagine if you were a guest in these homes, <laughs> right? You just kind of go through these game worlds, just obliterating everything because you might get like a heart or something out of it. So um, so I guess what I'm saying, um, Veronica, is that I've sort of, of two minds about it. Um, like I want games environments to be more actionable, um, but for the palette of of actions to be broader than just destruction. Like um, Destruction could be a pathway to these other things. But at the same time, um, I'm trying to celebrate sort of similarities between game players and designers and scientists in the sense that they have a, a spirit of experimentation. And in that vein, I do think just destructive forms of play where you are just um, ha- taking pleasure and, and destroying and blowing things up does have value. <laughs> um, Sometimes it's, it's just for fun, but it can lead to it can lead to reflection. I'm not saying it's going to lead to remorse, right? Some people do feel that when they um, like let their villagers perish in from dust. There's this game where you have to protect them against fire and flood and all this other stuff. But also, it just might lead you to think about the system as a whole. Um, so I guess these are these are pathways into. Um, I sort of get into it, but it wasn't very deep. Is um, there's a, a a genre, a subgenre of games that are called permadeath games, where, um, and there's kind of a spectrum, but you're either, you're setting your own house rule where you only have one life. And then once you've lost that life, you have to stop playing. But there are modes built into games like Minecraft, like hardcore, or they're often very masculinist, like hardcore Iron Man modes, (laughs) where, um, if you, if you lose your life, the entire world gets deleted, right? So I think those are those are interesting forms of very masochistic <laughs> and arguably destructive forms of play that also heighten your awareness of, like, the value of what's at stake.
0: Well, I had a question um, in thinking about the places that you mentioned. So you you talked about games, you know, in the home and games that now we carry on our mobile phone and we go out and. Uh, play Pokemon and, and other types of, you know, re- geolocated games. Um, but what I, what I wondered about was the arcade because that's where I played video games, right? Ooh. that was My first um, <laughs> experience in video games is using your quarters to play video games. Um, mm-hmm. and how if you thought at all about any of those games, if they showed up, um, and some of them, of course, have since been reincarnated in various ways for desktop play. Mm-hmm. But, but I think there was a very specific mm. ecosystem, too, of, of the video game parlor or arcade mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how that um, functioned with games as well. And uh, different, I mean, of course, the ultimate, I guess, uh, interaction with the environment, uh, Frogger, Right, where you're, uh, your yes. whole entire way of being is that it's about roadkill, right? And and mm-hmm. you're trying to avoid getting squashed. And here's these logs <laughs> and and alligators and you know. So so thinking, I didn't know if you had thought at all about the arcade and early games. Um, in the-
1: I, I didn't. I didn't really address the arcade context. Um, but I am interested. Uh, in that space because it's. Like like the more recent sort of um, phenomenon of esports, I think it's one that points to this new paradigm where a, a really large chunk of people would prefer to watch other people play games um, than actually play the games themselves. And so um, I have a student who wrote a a, th- a dissertation about this about game spectatorship and essentially um, how so much of it, maybe it's because of live streaming, but I think it grows out of these ambient gaming contexts of the arcade and, and, and other places um, that in many ways, games are now being designed to be watched as much as they're being designed to be played. So the games are being made to, be, to look good while being streamed. Um, so I think that is shifting things. Um, but it's 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 different from the sort of in-person dynamics of the arcade, and I think I know you guys play board games. <laughs> this is what I wish I had done more of: is that a lot of designers talk about how they are going analog more and more, or that some of them have moved in that direction because they value they value the sort of um, participatory dynamics of facing people across a table, and and having to to sort of negotiate the rules with other players um, in a way that is less rigid than you would find in a digital digital instantiation of the game. So I think, yeah, I think there's value in that. But I think, um, I don't know if you've been in an arcade recently, I've gone with my son, but they seem to have um, trended more and more toward like very um, thinly veiled like gambling. <laughs> It looks it looks more like Vegas than it does the arcade of the past. I, I, to me, it just looks like much more obvious that you just are giving money to people. <laughs> like you're just you're just paying money <laughs> into these these games so whereas
0: we would always try and pick the games that you could last the longest on because i came with my my you know set of quarters that was all i had for the saturday and you wanted to make sure that you had enough to to spend before mom came and picked you up Um, so uh yeah with changes i guess what you what you value although there were always some that were tempting that you knew you were gonna die you know, on a couple <laughs> levels, but you were still, you know, willing to play. The big payout one, but I, I, I'm a skee-ball person. So. Oh, I love <laughs> skee-ball, skee-ball. Yes. Oh, okay. You need to somehow make it an environmentally-based skee-ball and then uh, life should <laughs> be all
1: good. So. I love that you mentioned Frogger. I actually managed to work Frogger into one of my articles, and it was about, animal crossing games and about because um, I, I, I dabbled in game design, I worked with a student and we made a game about wildlife mitigation techniques, which is so sounds great, right? Like, you really want to play that. Um, but it, it was largely about, you know, how do you how do you dramatize this problem of interspecies flourishing? How do you how do you sort of get m- into the space of thinking about how animals have to negotiate human infrastructure? So, um, and it's, it's not a very good game, but it was an attempt to think, to like put into practice the theories. Um, yeah. So it's like, and because it's maybe not a good game or not fun, because what you mostly do is you don't do things. You choose not to do things. So you turn lights off so that the turtles don't get disoriented and you drive slowly down that darkened road. So you don't hit the deer. Right. So, um, (laughs) Unfortunately, as we play tested, we discovered it was much more fun to actually hit the deer.
0: Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, that whole, <laughs> that whole destructive tendency, right, that you were just talking about, right, and 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 this whole individualism and thinking about yourself in a game versus everything else that's in the game, and if it's if it's more fun or you win by being selfish. Um, <laughs> right. you know.
1: It doesn't help that the developer we made it in Unity and he, and the way that the object was coded, they're almost like deer asteroids. So when you hit it, it just kind of like spirals gently off into space. So it's like a ballet, a deer ballet. So I mean, this this also, <laughs>
2: also to uh, I think another discussion of spectatorship is of course that watching games being developed. So, I mean with this whole Kickstarter economy. So for instance, I. Oh, yeah. I've Funded a game probably five years ago, a computer game Uh-oh. dog simulator. Uh, <laughs> where, where, you know, I've been following this guy coding it, and then like dropping off, and then coming back in. It's like, oh yeah, now I'm back at it, and like trying to incorporate more and more of this, like being a lost dog in a city uh, gameplay, which is super fascinating. And you see the same thing on Kickstarter. How there's so many games that are, like, weird <clears throat> genres that either get funded or not funded. So
1: mm-hmm.
2: anyway. I, I've or, definitely I've definitely
1: thrown money down that hole. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I threw threw money down. There was a game about two ecologists, two female ecologists like collecting samples in the woods that I threw money at. And I don't think it's ever going to get made, but Sounds great. Um, I try. We're lucky. I think yeah. I missed a bunch in the chat. Sorry. No, no. I mean, no you were our, good. Yeah. You were good.
2: But we need to wrap we up now. Through. We are at our time. So, um, so thank you so much. This was a fabulous talk, very uh, interesting, uh, and yeah, we could talk a lot more about this. And I hope <laughs> we get more opportunities also in the future uh, to talk about this. So,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah. Once things are better, thank yes. you all for coming out, um, and feel free to feel free to email me if you have any questions. <laughs>